This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. I've been waiting to see you all year. Um, this is the last, and I hope the most special, of the readings and conversations of this Lenin season. And um, it's going to be an extraordinary night. I see someone shaking his head no. <laughs> There's two more. Where have I been? <laughs> In Los Angeles. I'm so sorry. Um, well, but, but how wonderful that you're all keeping track. I mean, I I truly believe in that, you know. Um, Do you know, then, that this will be online next week for the people who will not have heard it because they may be away on spring break? I'm sure there's no person um, under 30, under 40, who wouldn't have wanted to be here um, you know, I, 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 it's, a, it's an extraordinary thing. David Foster Wallace spoke for a whole generation and to that generation and everyone else as well. Um, if Gertrude Stein said that she wrote for herself and for friends... David Foster Wallace wrote for everyone, and genuinely so. In particular, to his generation, I believe that he wanted to say that that word, whatever, you know, that we hear so frequently, that his job, he felt, was to connect whatever back to human feeling. So that when we say, oh, I feel so sad, my father died last week and the house burned down, and the young person we're talking to says, whatever. (laughs) David wrote so that they would feel something missing when that whatever leapt forth. Um, Also, I think he didn't like no problem, because David was a writer for whom there was always a problem. He found them and examined and examined them minutely. It was an extraordinary thing. From his first book, *The Broom of the System*, which was actually an undergraduate dissertation, um, to his next work, which was a work of technical philosophy. He had to decide between fiction and philosophy, and bless him, lucky for us, he chose fiction. The extraordinary books that followed, of course, included Infinite Jest, probably the novel of our time. Um, If Tolstoy wanted to write a novel of his time, Infinite Jest is one, and now I'm so happy to tell you that although we've lost David... There is a novel of our time, truly of our time, called The Pale King, um, which 
our readers tonight have had the good fortune to read, thanks to David's publisher and editor, um, the publisher, Little Brown, um, gave us all advanced copies. No one else is getting them. Every one of us has signed confidentiality statements about this book, such as the secrecy that surrounds it. And tonight you are going to hear passages from it. Um, I, I, you know, I, I don't know. If I was sitting there among you, the sound I would want to... <gasps> you know. <laughs> Infinite jest. And then, you know, because David, he would have said it himself. He wanted to li- write... He liked to write a hard novel that everyone could read. He cared about the difficulty of literature and at the same time about its accessibility. Um, Why? Because David loved contradiction and double binds. Um, So he wanted to write something difficult that nevertheless would be devoured by its readers. And I think he succeeded. This new book, well... Every writer looks for a universal, yes? And we have that expression, the only things sure are death and taxes. Um, Well, David found death, but he left us a novel about taxes. (laughs) He wrote us a novel about the people who work for the IRS because we don't know them the faceless people, and because we always say about them, what kind of a person would do that? (laughs) He gives us portraits of them as children so that we can see what kind of person grows up. And then he empties, as always, he gives his full heart to them and um, describes them. He, you know, went out into the world as an essayist in two books, Consider the Lobster and the Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again. The Supposedly Fun Thing was a cruise, and I don't know, if I, 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 my parents roped me into going on one with them, and he's right, you know. <laughs> For a literary person, it is a supposedly fun thing that you'll never do again. Um, he's, he's unforgettable. I am especially afraid, and I hope that as you always have, you're a very unusual and generous audience. You know anyway that I have a tendency toward tears. I don't expect that things will be any different tonight because as far as I'm concerned, the greatest loss I've had in my lifetime of a writer who was really just entering his productive years is the loss of David Foster Wallace, who died three years ago. He hung himself. Now, I do feel, because David wasn't a, um, well, he didn't go around being a sensitive type. He wasn't like me. I'm always crying and letting people know that I'm not sure I know how to live. Um, But David seemed to know how to live, and if he couldn't do it, who can? It really, it worries me so much. And because David was such a, careful philosopher, I'm sure he had come to the conclusion that there was no other conclusion, you know. So please, if you happen to be a wonderful and good person, we have few of them, so commit yourself to life if you would. Don't leave 
because of what you've heard tonight and make any dire decisions. Literature is there to tell us about what goes wrong with life, but we still have to live it anyway. In this very auditorium, or at least an auditorium in Santa Fe, um, David read and spoke. And if those of us who believe that we leave behind particles which are eternally vibrating in our mists, some part of his spirit is here tonight. Therefore, I want to say how handsome he was, because he was, and like to hear it. I want to say what a natural writer he was, who managed, you see, as I say, he didn't want to just write. He wanted to be writing and be understood. So he did a book on one of the most difficult theoretical mathematicians. Oh, I told him I used to study math. I loved math. I was supposed to be a math major. At this point, you're supposed to again go, (gasps) (laughs) Could I read it? He said, oh, no, no, I don't need you to read it. I want someone to read it who thinks he hates math. I've written this book to be understood by someone who doesn't think he can understand mathematics. That care, he was so tough on himself. That care was care that he expended on every book. Any editor who worked with him at a magazine knows how much trouble he took to make things clearer, to get things better, to take pity on things. I was shown just yesterday, um, there happens to be a foundation in this town. I don't remember its name. It uh, funds this reading series. And... um, They had given David Foster Wallace one of his only literary prizes because they know a good thing when they see it. And they had sent him to their writer's colony in Marfa, Texas. And he had a very good and productive time there, as I hear everyone does. Um, But he wrote back with particular concern that no one hurt the swallows that were nesting in the house he was staying in. And for this purpose, he wrote this foundation a check for $150, saying, I I would like to leave behind money for the care of these birds. There may be a bit of guano on the porch, but it's not their fault. They're good birds. (laughs) This is the kind of person I can't help loving. The format of the evening will be a series of readings from the work of David Foster Wallace by three wonderful writers who I'll be introducing first before they come out to read. Each will be stepping forth at the end of his introduction and sitting down, um, and then they will read... Then we will, with no break whatsoever, this podium will be removed and we'll go on to discuss his work among us. The first reader is the marvelous Rick Moody. His book, um, The Five Fingers of Death, was my favorite novel of the last year. 
I, I thought it was extraordinary. He based it on a Z-grade science fiction novel, um, and it's 800 pages of the most hilarious misery I've encountered in years. When I say this book is relentless, I mean it as the highest compliment, and um, I, I love some of his other novels, The Diviners. I'm a big fan of his autobiographical work. He turns out to be a descendant of um, Hawthorne and the minister's black veil. Um, He's a magnificent writer, um, but he concedes that David was the best writer of his own generation. The second, um, Rick. The second reader will be David Lipsky, who had the very good fortune of being with David Foster Wallace on the tour before Infinite Jest came out. In other words, before many of us knew how terrific he was. I'd say that I'd give my teeth to have had that opportunity, but my teeth aren't very good. So I would have done anything to have been able to spend that kind of time with him. David Lipsky, a short story writer, novelist, and journalist, did have that opportunity and published the um, road trip that he took, giving it a Wonderful, very David-like phrase, although, of course, you end up becoming yourself. Um, um, David Lipsky is here, um, and he'll be reading, too. This is his book. All three of these wonderful writers had the great good fortune to work with Um, the very much missed and lamented John Hawkes at Brown University, um, one of the people who had the best year for cadence, I think, of any prose writer in America ever, including Faulkner. Um, And, you know, again, to spend time learning their craft in a writer so gifted. He worked with everyone, but I think the one who has written most frequently about her admiration for him is our third writer, Joanna Scott, who is the author of beautiful book after beautiful book. What I think she knows from him is that a novel is a world of imagination, and you follow your imagination as if down a rabbit hole. And her books, oh God, fiction, novels, short stories, tourmaline, oh, arrogance, they're all on sale outside, as are the other books. They're, they're wonderful, wonderful books. Um, the third reader will be Joanna Scott. Let's listen. Hi, you guys. It's an honor to be here. Um, We're encouraged to make prefatory remarks, and uh, 
I'm going to make very brief prefatory remarks. Um, David was a a friend and colleague of mine and uh, someone who I admired greatly from the first moment I knew of his work, uh, which I think was about the time that his collection of stories, Girl with Curious Hair, came out. Um, I had heard about Broom of the System, but I read this collection of stories with great uh, enthusiasm and excitement and heard him read, uh, I think it was 1988, maybe, or 89, in New York at a tiny little sort of performance art venue called Dixon Place. I didn't tell you this story yet, but it's a great story. With Bill Volman. They read together, and uh, David read for... uh, (laughs) David read for about an hour and 20 minutes because uh, he hadn't yet learned the keep the reading short thing exactly. And Bill Volman fired a starter's pistol during his reading, so it was very eventful reading. Um, uh, and I was completely bowled over by the book and by David. And, and it happened not long after that that we had the same uh, editor at Little Brown and so became... Uh, sort of stable mates, I guess, or litter mates of some kind. And, uh, and I got to know him quite a bit better uh, as a very admired colleague. Um, so I'm going to read a, a couple of very short things. The first is actually a, a friend of mine from here in Santa Fe, uh, Tim Ramick, gave me an interview that David did with, well, that Larry McCaffrey did with David for the review of contemporary fiction. I think it's about from the time that Girl with Curious Hair came out. And there are some really beautiful passages in here, so I'm just going to read a a page and a half of this. Um, He is uncharitable about one American writer, and I'm sure in his later career he would not have said these things in public. But he was young and impetuous, so forgive him for, for that here. David Foster Wallace. TV's real agenda is to be liked. Because if you like what you're seeing, you'll stay tuned. TV is completely unabashed about this. It's its sole raison. And sometimes when I look at my own stuff, I feel like I absorbed too much of this raison. I'll catch myself thinking up gags or trying formal stunt pilotry and see that none of this stuff is really in the service of the story itself. It's serving the rather darker purpose of communicating to the reader, hey, Look at me. Have a look at what a good writer I am. Like me. Now, to an extent, there's no way to escape this altogether because an author needs to demonstrate some sort of skill or merit so that the reader will trust her. There's some weird, delicate, I trust you not to fuck up on me relationship between the reader and the writer, and both have to sustain it. But there's an unignorable line between demonstrating skill and charm to gain trust for the story versus simple showing off. It can become an exercise in trying to get the reader to like and admire you instead of an exercise in creative art. I think TV promulgates the idea that good art is just art which makes people like and depend on the vehicle that brings them the art. This seems like a poisonous lesson for a would-be artist to grow up with. And one consequence is that if the artist is excessively dependent on simply being liked so that her true end isn't in the work 
but in a certain audience's good opinion, she's going to develop a terrific hostility to that audience simply because she has given over all her power, simply because she has given all her power away to them. It's the familiar love-hate syndrome of seduction. I don't really care what I say. I only care that you like it. But since your good opinion is the sole arbiter of my success and worth, you have a tremendous power over me, and I fear and hate you for it. This dynamic isn't exclusive to art, but I often think I can see it in myself and other young writers, this desperate desire to please coupled with a kind of hostility to the reader, Larry McCaffrey. In your own case, how does this hostility manifest itself, David Wallace? Oh, not always, but sometimes in the form of sentences that are syntactically not incorrect, but still a bitch to read. (laughs) Or bludgeoning the reader with data or devoting a lot of energy to creating expectations and then taking pleasure in disappointing them. (laughs) You can see this clearly in something like Ellis's American Psycho. It panders shamelessly to the audience's sadism for a while, but by the end it's clear that the sadism's real object is the reader herself. Larry McCaffrey. But at least in the case of American Psycho, I felt that there was something more than just this desire to inflict pain, or that Ellis was being cruel the way he said serious artists need to be willing to be. David Wallace. You're just displaying the sort of cynicism that lets readers be manipulated by bad writing. I think it's a kind of black cynicism about today's world that Ellis and certain others depend on for their readership. Look, if the contemporary condition is hopelessly shitty, insipid, materialistic, emotionally retarded, sadomasochistic, and stupid, then I or any writer can get away with slapping together stories with characters who are stupid, vapid, emotionally retarded, which is easy because these sorts of characters require no development, with descriptions that are simply lists of brand-name consumer products, where stupid people say insipid stuff to each other, If what's always distinguished bad writing, flat characters, a narrative world that's cliched and not recognizably human, etc., is also a description of today's world, then bad writing becomes an ingenious mimesis of a bad world. If readers simply believe the world is stupid and shallow and mean, then Ellis can write a mean, shallow, stupid novel that becomes a mordant, deadpan commentary on the badness of everything. Look, man... We probably most of us agree that these are dark times and stupid ones. But do we need fiction that does nothing but dramatize how dark and stupid everything is? In dark times, the definition of good art would seem to be that seem to be art that locates and applies CPR to those elements of what's human and magical that's, that still live and glow despite the time's darkness. Really good fiction could have as, a dark, as dark a worldview as it wished, but it had find a way both to depict that world and to illuminate the possibilities for being alive and human in it. You can defend Psycho as being a sort of performative digest of late 80s social problems, but it's no more than that. Are you saying that writers of your generation have an obligation not only to depict our condition, but also to provide solutions to these things? David Wallace. 
I don't think I'm talking about conventionally political or social action type solutions. That's not what fiction's about. Fiction's about what it is to be a fucking human being. If you operate, which most of us do, from the premise that there are things about the contemporary U.S. that make it distinctively hard to be a real human being, then maybe half of fiction's job is to dramatize what it is that makes it tough. The other half is to dramatize the fact that we still are human beings now, or can be. This isn't that it's fiction's duty to edify or teach or to make us good little Christians or Republicans. I'm not trying to line up behind Tolstoy or Gardner. I just think that fiction that isn't exploring what it means to be human today is an art. We've got all this literary fiction that simply monotones that we're all becoming less and less human, that presents characters without souls or love, characters who really are exhaustively describable in terms of what brands of stuff they wear, and we all buy the books and go like, golly, what a mordantly effective commentary on contemporary materialism. (laughs) But we already know U.S. culture is materialistic. This diagnosis can be done in about two lines. It doesn't engage anybody. What's engaging and artistically real is taking it as axiomatic that the present is grotesquely materialistic. How is it that we, as human beings, still have the capacity for joy, charity, genuine connections, for stuff that doesn't have a price? And can these capacities be made to thrive? And if so, how? And if not, why not? Um, I'm going to read a tiny bit out. There's a very short story in Girl with Curious Hair, and sort of ingeniously, because this is the way things line up in, in sort of the, when you take the long view about American literature, it's actually about CPR. And there was that CPR line in the interview. So this is a little story called Luckily the Account Representative New CPR. An account representative, newly divorced, finished another late evening of work at his office in accounts. It was well past ten. In another office at the opposite end of a different floor, the firm's vice president in charge of overseas production, married for almost thirty years, grandfather of one, also finished working late. Both men left. There were between these last two executives to leave the building, the sorts of similarities enjoyed by parallel lines. Each man, leaving, balanced his weight against that of a heavily slender briefcase, monograms and company logos, flanked handles of leathered metal, which each man held. Each man on a separate empty floor moved down white-lit halls over whispering and mealy and monochromatic carpet, toward elevators that each sat open-mouthed and mute in its shaft along one of the large building's two accessible sides. Each man passing through his department's hall felt the special subsonic disquiet, the overtime executive in top coat and unfresh suit and loosened tie, feels as he moves in nighttime through areas meant to be experienced in and as Daytime. 
Each received to the varying degrees of their respective the varying degrees their respective pains allowed an intuition of the askew, as in the neatly stacked slices of lit space between the executive and the distant lament of a custodian's vacuum, the building's very silence took on expression. They sensed, almost spinally, the slow release of great breath, a spatial sigh, a slight, sly movement of huge lids cracked in wakened affinity with the emptiness that was, after all, the reasonable executive realizes half the building's total day. Realizes that the building not only took up but organized space, contained the executive, and not vice versa. That the building was not, after all, comprised of or by executives or staff. Particularly the divorced account representative who remarked silently alone as his elevator dropped toward the executive garage that at a certain unnoticed but never unheeded point in every corporate evening he worked, it became time to leave. That this point in the overtime night was a fulcrum on which things basic and unseen tilted very slightly, a pivot in hours unaware, and that in the period between this point and the fresh-suited working dawn, the very issue of the building's ownership would become quietly, in their absence, truly an issue, hung in air, unsettled. The account representative hung in air, dropping on his elevator's wire. This, again, single junior executive was spare, lithe, had about him an air of extreme economy, was young for an executive, was most at ease with though he count, those he countenanced at a distance of several feet and had a professional manner with respect to the accounts he represented for the firm. Describable along a continuum from smoothly capable to cold. His elevator descended with a compact hum that was usually hard to hear. The account representatives imported and clean white motor scooter leaned at the angle of its kickstand behind a solid and equally clean, broad brougham of a car. These were the only vehicles left in the empty executive garage below the staff garage, below the building's basement maintenance level. Now well past 10, the building's deepest plane seemed very distant from everything else. The empty executive garage was enormous, broad, long, its ceiling a claustrophobic eight and a quarter feet, its barely overhead lights harshly yellow, its surfaces cement the tired color of much exhaust. The trundle and sigh of the account representative's elevator's closure produced echoes and echoes of echoes against and between the executive garage's gray stone planes, as did the click of the account representative's dress shoes and the jangled separation of his keys from his change. The silence of the place, complete and sensitive to disturbance, discouraged whistling. The executive garage smelled of automobile exhaust, something vaguely but thoroughly rubber, and the account representative. A humid stir of air moved through the garage, 
It came from the curving orifice of the exit ramp located next to the reserved spaces reserved for directors and operating officers. Perhaps half a Turanian city block from the centrally parked Brougham and Cycle. The exit ramp spiraled darkly around and out of sight, up through the staff level and toward the silent, empty, municipally lit street above it. The account representative rounded the keel of the shiny black Brougham and was at his scooter when an elevator on the executive garage's opposite side trundled and sighed. His safety helmet was attached and locked to the cycle's tail clamp and was thus for now the cycle's own safety helmet and the account representative whose wife, from whom he was now legally separate, had been into the combined and confabulated sides of things, had a temporary experience of the helmeted scooter as Shetland Centaur, sprite-ridden, emptily, and tinily owned, tonight's experience very temporary because the junior executive looked almost immediately past the cycle and across the garage toward the echoed ding of its opposite elevator. The elevator disgorged the vice president in charge of overseas production, who moved stiffly, flushed, into the open, low, yellowed space of the executive garage." The account representative and the, vice, and the vice president in charge of overseas production knew each other only slightly and only by sight. And the account representative had removed his contact lenses in the men's room in accounts before settling down into a long evening of close reading by white light. But since the vice president in charge of overseas production was such a large man, tall, large, broad, blunt, his back a slow-moving hull in production's daytime hallways, was also florid, craggy, an executive old enough to be literally senior, the account representative recognized almost immediately that it was the vice president in charge of overseas production who emerged from the executive garage's opposite elevator and clicked and jangled his way stiffly toward the account representative's focus the older man's head cocked as at an unheard pitch, distracted, his quite large body queerly and slantedly slowed, halting, listing, failing to satisfy a clear disposition to briskness, moving only via a shift of weight from side to side, a humanoid balloon with too much air, bearing his heavy, slender, leather-handled case towards the solid black brougham that sat next to the account representative's sprightly and helmeted cycle, all the while feeling at something in the front of his topcoat with a handful of tissues and keys. The account representative bent back to the involved removal of his securely clamped helmet. He was preparing to feel that male and special feeling associated with the conversational imperative faced by any two men with some professional connection who meet in nighttime across an otherwise empty and silently but fragilely silent underground space far below the tall and vaguely pulsing sight of a long and weary day for both. The obligation of conversation 
without the conversational prerequisites of intimacy or interests or concerns to share. They shared pain, though, of course, neither knew. Bent to the decapitation of his cycle, the account representative was choosing words neither dismissive nor inviting, inviting, neither terse nor intrusive. He was composing a carefully casual face, narrowing salutatory options toward a sort of landlocked halloo that contained already an acknowledgement of distance and an easy willingness to preserve same. Bent, he composed the flesh of his face, shaped a cool but respectfully cool and by no stretch of the imagination pained eye with which to meet the inevitable eye of the vice president in charge of overseas production. The opposite elevator's door trundled shut. Things inside ascended, sounding. The vice president in in charge of overseas production was still distant enough to produce echoes, but was peripherally still bearing down slowly. A balloon, a glacier on the account representative who lifted his face's composition from the at last amputated helmet and turned from the white cycle to the approach of the senior executive. The vice president in charge of overseas production, he saw, having been bearing down, his jangled hand to his topcoat's front had now stopped. He now stood stock still, lifting his thick neck and large head to nothing as an animal keens to the waft of a warning scent. The account representative looked, then watched, as the vice president in charge of overseas production stood frozen, inflated, and grimaced. The senior executive grimaced at a point behind and apparently just above the account representative, as if parsing an auto antenna's rune on the scratched eight-foot-three-inch clearance of the garage's ceiling. The vice president in charge of overseas production stood, grimaced, rooted just beyond perfect astigmatic focus. He balanced heavily, grimaced again, dropped a noisy, slender briefcase, and and placed both hands over a vague concavity that seemed a bit blurrily, to have appeared in the double-breasted front of his top coat. He grabbed at himself, as do those in pain. He seemed to fold himself in two, his whole big body curving out and around the apparent pain of his coat's front's divot. He emitted what sounded like a gargle, trebled by echo. The account representative watched as the vice president in charge of overseas production pirouetted, pirouetted, raked a raw, clean streak in a cement pillar's soot, and clipped a wrong-way sign's weighted concrete donut with a roundabout heel as he pirouetted, reached out at air, hunched, crumpled, and fell. He seemed to fall, the account representative remarked, watching, surprised, out of time, at about half the rate the average thing takes to fall. The vice president in charge of overseas production, gargling, holding his chest's recession, fell with a slow grace to the exhausted floor 
of the executive garage where he proceeded to writhe. Luckily, the account representative knew CPR. Uh, The opening of The Pale King is one paragraph, quite a short paragraph, um, and extraordinarily beautiful, I think. This may be one of the great openings in recent American fiction. Um, The opening has nothing really to do with the IRS, uh, but the account executive uh, story seems to me premonitory of The Pale King's fixation on business and offices and the sort of serpentine movement of American capital, uh, which is why it's a good piece to read tonight. But this opening passage has no other purpose, I don't think, but um, panorama and uh, uh, the lens opened as wide as it can be at the opening of a novel. So here's chapter one. past the flannel plains and blacktop graphs and skylines of canted rust, and past the tobacco-brown river overhung with weeping trees and coins of sunlight through them on the water down river to the place beyond the windbreak where untilled fields simmer shrilly in the a.m. heat, shatter cane, lamb's quarter, Cut grass, sawbriar, nut grass, jimson weed, wild mint, dandelion, foxtail, muscadine, spine cabbage, goldenrod, creeping charlie, butterprint, nightshade, ragweed, wild oat, vetch, butcher grass, invaginate volunteer beans all heads gently nodding in a morning breeze like a mother's soft hand on your cheek. An arrow of starlings fired from the windbreak's thatch. The glitter of dew that stays where it is and steams all day. A sunflower, four more, one bowed, and horses in the distance standing rigid and still as toys, all nodding, electric sounds of insects at their business, ale-colored sunshine and pale sky and whorls of cirrus so high they cast no shadow, insects, all business, all the time, quartz and chert and schist and chondrite iron scabs in granite Very old land. Look around you. The horizon trembling, shapeless. We are all of us brothers. Some crows come overhead then, three or four, not a murder, on the wing, silent with intent, corn-bound for the pasture's wire, beyond which one horse smells at the other's behind, the lead horse's tail obligingly lifted, your shoes brand incised in the dew, an alfalfa breeze, socks burrs, dry scratching 
inside a culvert. Rusted wire and tilted posts, more a symbol of restraint than a fence per se. No hunting. The shush of the interstate off past the windbreak, the pastures crows standing at angles, turning up patties to get at the worms underneath, the shapes of the worms incised in the overturned dung and baked by the sun all day until hardened, there to stay, tiny vacant lines in rows and inset curls that do not close because head never quite touches tail. Read these. Thanks a lot. Thanks. I'm just, um, I'm just arranging some timepieces for myself. Um, because uh, we're all supposed to read for about 20 minutes. And, um, and I have the sense that this evening, because David is so good to read, might, um, uh, I live in New York City, and um, every year on June 16th, people celebrate Ulysses by reading that whole book, you know, in one or two or three days. And um, so I think this evening, since we're getting to read David's work in, in celebration of his new novel, may take on some of the elements of that, but you guys are lucky because there's no, there's no writer who's written for the last 25 years who, who deserves that kind of attention more. But I will... I will try to hove to, um, <laughs> to getting you out on a decent schedule. Um, <clears throat> David is an extraordinary writer. Um, what's, one of the things that I think is kind of uh, that, um, that makes him so good is that he seems to have, when he's talking about his own work and about how hurt it is, he seems to have a sense that it will be extremely difficult, even though anyone who's read him or anyone who knew him knew that he was just uh, about as charming a personality as you could come across, um, and on the page, uh, about as charming a, a voice as you could ever find. Um, but what's funny about David, when, uh, when we were driving around, is he was talking about writing, and he said, um, uh, you know, I don't think writers are any smarter than other people. Uh, I think they may be more compelling in their stupidity uh, or in their confusion. Um, so I thought before I would begin reading some stuff of David's, I would, um, I would, read, uh, I would read a few things. Um, well, one more thing I thought was great about his sense of the, uh, the writers. Well, you know, I do, want it, I do want it to feel like Bloomsday, if it possibly can, um, is his sense of what the writer's job is. And I think it's, it's something that I, that I always think about when um, I think about both as a reader and as a writer. Um, he says... What writers have is a license and also the freedom to sit, to sit, clench their fists, and make themselves be excruciatingly aware of the stuff that we're mostly aware of only on a certain level. And if the writer does his job right, what he basically does is remind the reader of how smart the reader is, is to wake the reader up to stuff the reader's been aware of all the time. And it's not a question of the writer having more capacity than the average person. It's that the writer is willing, I think, to cut off, cut himself off from certain stuff and just and think really hard, which not everybody has the luxury to do. So I'm going to begin with, um, with two, two short things of David's that are about um, how hard it is to communicate. And then I'm going to begin reading from um, Infinite Jest and then from some of his essays. <clears throat> Suppose you and I are acquaintances and we're in my apartment having a conversation and at some point 
I want to terminate the conversation and have you not be in my apartment anymore. <laughs> Very delicate social moment. Think of, all the delic- think of all the different ways I can try to handle it. Wow, look at the time. Could we finish this up later? Could you please leave now? <laughs> Go. Get out. Get the hell out of here. <laughs> Didn't you say you had to be someplace? <laughs> Time for you to hit the dusty trail, my friend. (laughs) Off you go then, love. Or that sly old telephone conversation ender, well, I'm going to let you go now. (laughs) In real life, I always seem to have a hard time winding up a conversation or asking somebody to leave, and sometimes the moment becomes so delicate and fraught with social complexity that I'll get overwhelmed and and just sort of blank out and do it totally straight. I want you... I want to terminate this conversation and have you not be in my apartment anymore. (laughs) Which evidently makes me look either as if I'm very rude and abrupt or as if I'm (laughs) semi-autistic. I've actually lost friends this way. And then from, um, from a great story of David's called Good Old Neon, he's talking about just the difficulty, um, not getting someone out of your house, but just talking to someone in almost any context. And he says, he writes towards the end of that story, the truth is, you already know what it's like. You already know the difference between the size and speed of everything that flashes through you and the tiny, inadequate bit of it. <clears throat> uh, and, and the tiny, inadequate bit of it that's all you can ever let anyone know. As though inside you is this enormous room full of what seems like everything in the whole universe at one time or another, and yet the only parts that you can get out have to somehow squeeze out through one of those tiny keyholes you see under the knob in older doors, as if we're all trying to see each other through these tiny keyholes. And of course, what's amazing about David's work is how much he can get through that keyhole. Um, So before I begin reading Infinite Jest, I wanted to show you just what David can do with facial expressions, just sort of three examples of facial expressions. the first two are from a, journal, a piece of journalism. He did a great essay about visiting the sort of Academy Awards of pornography. It's the, the Adult Video News Awards in 1998. And he begins, The best way to describe the sonic environment at the, 90, at the 98 AVN Awards is, imagine that the apocalypse took the form of a cocktail party. <laughs> Male fans move through the maze of booths in groups of three or more. Their expressions tend to be those of junior high school boys at a peephole, an expression that looks pretty surreal on a face with jowls and no hairline. (laughs) And then he's talking about walking around that maze himself, and he's seeing people, and he's done research for the piece. So he writes, It is difficult to describe how it feels to gaze at living human beings who you've seen perform in hardcore porn. To shake the hand of a man whose precise erectile size, angle, and vasculature are known to you. (laughs) That strange, I think we've met somewhere before, (laughs) sensation one feels upon seeing any celebrity in the flesh is here both intensified and twisted. To have seen these strangers' faces in orgasm, that most unguarded and purely neural of expressions, the one so vulnerable that for centuries, you basically had to marry a person to get to see it. And then a very different kind of facial expression. He's talking about watching filmmaker David Lynch, whose work he loved. Um, His eyes are good eyes. He looks at his set with very intense interest, but it's a warm and full-hearted interest, 
sort of the way you look when you're watching somebody you love doing something you also love. Um, and then I'm going to read from, um, from Infinite Jest. Uh, and there goes one of my timepieces, which will make this even longer. Um, but uh, Infinite Jest, uh, part of it takes place at a halfway house called Ennett House. And so this is a list of things you learn if you're at Ennett House. If, by virtue of charity or the circumstance of desperation, you ever chance to spend a little time around a substance recovery halfway facility like Enfield, Massachusetts, state-funded Ennett House, you will acquire many exotic new facts. For instance that it is possible, in sleep, for some roommates to secure a cigarette from their bedside pack, light it, smoke it down to the quick, and then extinguish it in their bedside ashtray without once waking up and without setting anything on fire. (laughs) You will be informed that this skill is usually acquired in penal institutions, which will lower your inclination to complain about the practice. (laughs) That certain types, that certain persons simply will not like you no matter what you do and then that most non-addicted adult civilians have already absorbed and accepted this fact, often rather early on. That no matter how smart you thought you were, you were actually way less smart than that. That AA and NA and CA's God does not apparently require that you believe in him, her, it, before he, she, it will help you. That That pace macho bullshit Public male weeping is not only plenty masculine, but can actually feel good, reportedly. (laughs) That you do not have to like a person in order to learn from him, her, it. That loneliness is not a function of solitude. That it is possible to get so angry you really do see everything red. That logical validity is not a guarantee of truth. That it is possible to learn valuable things from a stupid person that it takes effort to pay attention to any one stimulus for more than a few seconds, that boring activities become, perversely, much less boring if you concentrate intently on them, that sometimes human beings have to just sit in one place and, like, hurt, that you will become way less concerned with what other people think of you when you realize how seldom they do, (laughs) that there is such a thing as raw, unalloyed, agendaless kindness. That concentrating intently on anything is very hard work. That cats will in fact get violent diarrhea if you feed them milk, contrary to the popular image of cats and milk. That it is simply more pleasant to be happy than to be pissed off. That 99% of compulsive thinkers' thinking is about themselves. That 100% of the things they spend 99% of their time and energy imagining and trying to prepare for all the contingencies and consequences of are never good. In short, that 99% of the head's thinking activity consists of trying to scare the the ever-living shit out of itself. (laughs) That it is possible to make rather tasty poached eggs in a microwave oven that it takes great personal courage to let yourself appear weak, that no single individual moment is in and of itself unendurable, that pretty much everybody masturbates, rather a lot, it turns out, (laughs) that other people can often see things about you that you yourself cannot see, even if those people are stupid, that trying to dance sober is a whole different kettle of fish, (laughs) that acceptance 
is usually more a matter of fatigue than anything else. (laughs) That having sex with someone you do not care for feels lonelier than not having had sex in the first place afterward. That everybody is identical in their secret, unspoken belief that way deep down they are different from everyone else. That this isn't necessarily perverse. That there might not be angels, but there are people who might as well be angels. That God, unless you're Charlton Heston or unhinged, or both, speaks and acts entirely through the vehicle of human beings, if there is a God. That God might regard the issue of whether you believe there's a God or not as fairly low on his, her, its list of things she, he, it's interested in, re, you. Um, And then before I read the the next things, which are from, from his essay collection called The Supposedly Fun Thing I'll Never Do Again, the one that Michael was talking about, I just wanted to show you... Uh, what a writer as good as David could do just with something like, um, like the sky. Uh, when a writer is as good as David, uh, when David, David wrote a, a great piece about politics, he wrote a piece about John McCain, and um, after writing all this great stuff about how it is to be on the trail and how it is to watch a political figure kind of go into stride and then to learn to mistrust that political figure, he ends not with an, with an injunction to, to pay more attention to politicians or to get more involved in the community. What he says is, Try, try to stay awake. And that, that is what the best writing does. I mean, writing, writing when, it's, when it's working as well as it can, it's kind of like a mental graffiti. And once you read it, it's kind of extensive that the little window that we have between ourselves and the world, the, the writer's image kind of sticks there. And in these things about colors, just David doing a few colors and skies, it's very hard to unsee the sky this way once he's done it. It's well up in the 90s, and the sky is the color of old jeans. Then in the late a.m., the isolate clouds overhead start moving towards one another, and in the early p.m., they begin very slowly interlocking like jigsaw pieces, and by evening, the puzzle will be solved, and the sky will be the color of old dimes. The day is autumnal and mild, the east breeze smelling of urban commerce and the vague suede smell of new-fallen leaves. The sky is pilot light blue. Sunlight reflects complexly off the smoke glass sides of tall centers and of the tall centers of commerce all around. Okay, the next thing I'm going to read is um, is from the cruise ship piece that Michael was talking about. Um, I'm going to read you a little bit of how David goes out there. He was assigned to spend a week on a cruise ship called um, called the the Zenith, which he very quickly in the piece renames the Nader. Um, <laughs> And this is, um, this is David, uh, before I actually read this section, the thing, the thing that David is worried about in the piece is, um, is, how, uh, is how he'll deal with the pampering, because the general thing that the, that the people on the cruise are advertising is not actually the trip itself, but how he'd be pampered by the staff, which is like, you know, uh, one crew member for every two passengers. So just a very quick thing of the trip to the ship, and then um, his first experiences with pampering. He's now, he's now in, the, um, in, the, uh, in the pier about an hour or so before the boat takes off. Some of the people in the rows of chairs appear to have been here for days. They have the glazed, encamped look of people in airports in blizzards. <laughs> Every infant within earshot has a promising future in professional opera. <laughs> also, 
Every infant being carried or held is being carried or held by its female parent. The women all somehow give the impression of being on magazine diets. And then, um, and then as he's driving towards the, uh, towards the boat and the buses, we pass a huge field of those hammer-shaped automatic oil derricks all bobbing fallaciously. <laughs> and on the horizon past them is a little fingernail clipping of shiny gray that I'm thinking must be the sea. Now, again, I, um, I defy you, you know, after you guys go out of the theater and next time you're driving by a derrick, try to forget that image. <laughs> um, okay, so now he's on the cruise. And the, the, the shipping line that, that is handling the cruise is called Celebrity Cruise Line. So, Celebrity's brochure does not lie or exaggerate, however, in the luxury department. And I now confront the journalistic problem of not being sure how many examples I need to list in order to communicate the atmosphere of sybaritic and nearly insanity-producing pampering on board the MV Nader. Take as one example the moment right after sailing when I want to go out to Deck 10's port rail for some introductory vista-gazing and thus decide I need some zinc oxide for my peel-prone nose. My zinc oxide's still in my big duffel bag, which at that point is piled with all of Deck 10's other luggage in a little area between the 10-4 elevator and the 10-4 staircase with little guys in cadet blue celebrity jumpsuits, porters, entirely Lebanese, it seems, are cross-checking the luggage tags with the Nader's passenger list and lugging everything to people's cabins. So I come out and spot my duffel among the luggage, and I start to grab and haul it out of the towering pile of leather and nylon, thinking I'll just whisk the bag back to cabin 1009 myself and root through it and find my zinc oxide. One of the porters sees me starting to grab the bag, though, and he dumps all four of the massive pieces of luggage he's staggering with and leaps to intercept me. At first, I'm afraid he thinks I'm some kind of baggage thief (laughs) and wants to see my claim check or something. But it turns out what he wants is my duffel. He wants to carry it to 1009 for me. And I, who am about half again this poor little herniated guy's size, as is the duffel bag itself, protest politely, trying to be considerate, saying, don't fret, not a big deal, just need my good old zinc oxide, I'll just get the big old heavy weather-stained sucker out of here myself. And now a very strange argument ensues, me versus the Lebanese porter, because, I now understand, I am putting this guy who barely speaks English in a terrible kind of sedulous services double bind, a paradox of pampering. The passenger's always right versus never let a passenger carry his own bag. (laughs) Clueless at the time about what this poor man is going through, I wave off both his high-pitched protests and his agonized expression as mere servile courtesy, and I extract the duffel and lug it up the hall to 1009 and lather the old beak with zinc oxide and go outside to watch Florida recede cinematically. Only later do I understand what I've done. Only later do I learn that that little Lebanese Deck 10 porter had his head just about chewed off by the also Lebanese Deck 10 head porter, who had his own head chewed off by the Austrian chief steward, who received confirmed reports that a passenger had been seen carrying his own bag (laughs) up the port hallway of Deck 10 and and is now demanding a rolling Lebanese head for this this clear indication of porterly dereliction. And the Austrian chief steward had reported the incident to a ship's officer in the guest relations department, a Greek guy with Revo shades and a walkie-talkie, and epaulets so complex I never did figure out what his rank was. (laughs) 
And this high-ranking Greek guy actually came around to 10.09 after Saturday's supper to apologize on behalf of practically the entire Chandra's shipping line <laughs> and to assure me that ragged-necked Lebanese heads were even at that moment rolling down various corridors in piacular recompense for my having had to carry my own bag. And even though this Greek officer's English was in lots of ways way better than mine, it took me no less than 10 minutes to detail the double bond I'd put the porter in, brandishing at relevant moments the actual tube of zinc oxide that had caused the whole snafu. 10 or more minutes before I could get enough of a promise from the Greek officer that various chewed-off heads would be reattached and employee records unbesmirched to feel comfortable enough to allow the officer to leave. And the whole incident was incredibly frazzling and despair-fraught and filled almost half a spiral notebook and is here recounted in only its barest psychoskeletal outline. <laughs> and, <laughs> oh, there's more. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was going to read you... Um, I was going to read you David talking about weather, which I found really beautiful, but... If I can't find it very quickly, we'll go into more pampering. Um, Ah, great. This is just a number of seasons, so quickly back to back. Uh, The trees' bony fingers make spell-casting gestures in the wind as they pass. The window clicked with fine rain, the sort of rain that stabs you but doesn't get you wet. She can hear the rain's thup on tight umbrellas and hear it hiss in the street, and can see droplets broken and regathering on her polyresin coat, cars sheening by with that special lonely sound of cars in rain, wipers making black rainbows on taxis' shining windshields. The dawn is still chalky and no one's around except the morning doves that infest the parents at sunrise, and the air is so soft you can see your summer breath. The sun has the attenuated autumn quality of seeming to be behind several panes of glass, the cold penny tang of the autumn air, little asterisks of snow. The sleet fall is slight. It sounds like somebody's throwing little fistfuls of sand at the window from real far away. The snow on the ground has a purple cast to it, but the falling and whirling snow is virgin white, yachting cap white. Um, And then more pampering. This is about cabin service. As a kind of semi-agoraphobe who spends massive amounts of time in my cabin, I have come to have a really complex dependency-shame relationship with cabin service. (laughs) Since finally getting around to reading the services directory and finding out about it Monday night, I've ended up availing myself of cabin service every night, more like twice a night, to be honest even though I find it extremely embarrassing to be calling up Star 72 asking to have even more rich food brought to me when they've they've already been around 11 gourmet eating ops that day. And then this is is footnote one from the section about one of the eating ops. This is counting midnight buffet, which tends to be a kind of lamely lavish theme-slash-costume party-ish thing with theme-related foods, Oriental, Caribbean, Tex-Mex, and which I plan to mostly skip except to say that Tex-Mex Night Out by the Pool featured what must have been a seven-foot-high ice sculpture of Pancho Villa <laughs> that spent the whole party dripping steadily onto the mammoth sombrero of Tibor, 
Table 64's beloved and extremely cool Hungarian waiter, whose contract forces him on Tex-Mex night to wear a serape and a straw sombrero with a 17-inch radius. He let me measure it when the reptilian maitre d' wasn't looking. And to dispense four-alarm chili from a steam table placed right underneath an ice sculpture, and whose pink and bird-like face on occasions like this expresses a combination of mortification and dignity that seems somehow to sum up the whole plight of post-war Eastern Europe. Uh, Usually what I do is spread out my notebooks and Fielding's Guide to Worldwide Cruising 1995 and pens and various materials all over the bed. So when the cabin service guy appears at the door, he'll see all this bellatristic material and figure I'm working really hard on something bellatristic right here in the cabin and have doubtless been too busy to have hit all the public meals and I'm thus legitimately entitled to the indulgence of cabin service. And the footnote is, I know, like I'm sure this guy even cares. Thanks a lot. He truly was the funniest writer of his time, among many other things. You know, as I was approaching this event, I was feeling some mixed emotions, um, feeling that, well main person isn't up here. And as I've been sitting listening, I've been just struck by how one of the great things of writing of this quality is that that it it lasts. It it, it conjures someone who's gone from us. We we continue to have him here. I I do feel a little jealous of my fellows up here on stage because I am the only one who who didn't um, Meet David. I always thought I would, but I always thought our paths would cross, but uh, they never did, unfortunately. Um, so I can speak tonight a little bit about what it's like to read him, and I, I think I share with many people in the audience, probably just from listening tonight, or if you've read David's work, the, the feeling that if, if, if you read, if you keep reading and keep reading, you kind of forget that you're not one of his characters, and it, 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 you start to talk like his characters, and you start to use long sentences with lots of subordinate clauses, or else you say, this is a pile of shit, and you think, oh my God, that's just straight out of David Foster Wallace. So, you know, he just, he, 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 he haunts us, he, he has that, that rare power that great artist has to... to captivate us. Um, He is infinitely perceptive, capacious writer, uh, and it's impossible that he's not just revealing us in our foibles. He's not just making fun of us. He's loving us, and and he's defining us in our time. Um, He makes us realize how absurd language can be and uh, how beautiful it is in that absurdity. And so I'm just going to read a little passage from what is really a canonical essay now that David wrote. In fact, I think it's in your, a, a, pa- a different passage is quoted in uh, your program from Authority and American Usage. Um, in this, I, David turns 
an inquiry into linguistic expression into a little bit of an autobiographical uh, essay, uh, at least in, in this section. Um, he, here he's asking us to imagine what it's like to uh, try to talk like other groups talk. And he says this. Try this thought experiment. A bunch of U.S. teenagers in clothes that look several sizes too large for them are sitting together in the local mall's food court. And imagine that a 53-year-old man with jowls, a comb-over, and clothes that fit perfectly comes over to them and says he was scoping them (laughs) and thinks they're totally rad and or fat and asks, is it cool if he just kicks it? and chills with them here at the table, the kid's reaction is going to be either scorn or embarrassment for the guy, most likely a mix of both. Question, why? Or imagine the two hardcore young urban black guys are standing there talking, and I, who am resoundingly and in all ways white, come up and greet them with, yo, and address one or both as brother and ask, what's up, what's going on? Pronouncing on with that New York City-ish one diphthong that young urban black English deploys for a standard O. Either these guys are going to think that I am mocking them and be offended, or they are going to think that I am simply out of my mind. No other reaction is remotely foreseeable. Question, why? Why? A dialect of English is learned and used either because it's your native vernacular or because it's the dialect of a group by which you wish, with some degree of plausibility, to be accepted. And although it is a major and vitally important one, SWE, Standard Written English, is only one dialect, and it is never, or at least hardly ever, footnote, it is admittedly difficult to imagine William F. Buckley using or perhaps even being aware of anything besides standard written English. (laughs) Anybody's only dialect. This is because there are, as you and I both know, and yet no one in the usage wars ever seems to mention, situations in which faultlessly correct SWE is not the appropriate dialect. Childhood is full of such situations. This is one reason why snootlets, he calls them. And a a snootlet is someone who uh, is defined as an extreme usage fanatic, a snoot. And so this is a snootlet. Snootlets tend to have such a hard social time of it in school. A snootlet is a little kid who's wildly, precociously fluent in SWE. He is often recalled the offspring of snoots. (laughs) Just about every class has a snootlet, so I know you've seen them. These are the sorts of 6- to 12-year-olds who use whom correctly, (laughs) whose response to striking out in T-ball is to shout, how incalculably dreadful. (laughs) The elementary school snootlet is one of the earliest identifiable species of academic geekoid and is duly despised by his peers and praised by his teachers. 
These teachers usually don't see the incredible amounts of punishment the snootlet is receiving from his classmates. If they do see it, they blame the classmates and shake their heads sadly at the vicious and arbitrary cruelty of which children are capable. Teachers who do this are dumb. The truth is that his peers' punishment of the snootlet is not arbitrary at all. There are important things at stake. Little kids in school are learning about group inclusion and exclusion and about the respective rewards and penalties of same and about the use of dialect and syntax and slang as signals of affinity and inclusion. They're learning about discourse communities. Little kids learn this stuff not in language arts or social studies, but on the playground and the bus and at lunch. When his peers are ostracizing the snootlet or giving him monstrous quadruple wedgies, or holding him down and taking turns spitting on him, there's serious learning going on. (laughs) Um, So the next two passages I'm going to read, I I hope in some way follow from from that. They they have to do with with the acquisition of language, the... the, uh, the nuances of the usage of, of language. There's a part, now, the, the, the Pale King is in, is uh, ostensibly about the IRS. In fact, I was struck by Michael's comment that David really knew he had to write about problems. Today, I had the, te- in the hotel room, had the television on mute, and on it, the screen suddenly lit up with the sign that said, do you have problems with the IRS? <laughs> That's David Foster Wallace again. He's in the hotel room. <laughs> um, but here, it's, it's, the Pale King is a lot of things, actually. And um, there is, um, inside it, not at the beginning, uh, a little farther on, what he calls an author's foreword. And I'm just going to read a couple of paragraphs from this author's foreword. He, he's playing with the boundaries between fiction and, and memoir here, you probably get a sense of that. So, so he's, he, he interrupts the story to say, The Pale King is basically a nonfiction memoir with addition elements of reconstructive journalism, organizational psychology, elementary civics, and tax theory, etc. <laughs> Sounds great, doesn't it? Our, our mutual contract here is based on the presumptions of A, my veracity, and B, your understanding that any features or semions that might appear to undercut that veracity are in fact protective legal devices, not unlike the boilerplate that accompanies sweepstakes and civil contracts, and thus are not meant to be decoded or read, so much as merely acquiesce to as part of the cost of our doing business together, so to speak, in today's commercial climate, Footnote, apologies for the preceding sentence, which is the product of much haggling and compromise with the publisher's legal term. (laughs) But there's the autobiographical fact that, like so many other nerdy, disaffected young people of that time, I dreamed of becoming an artist, i.e. somebody whose adult job was original and creative instead of tedious and drone-like. My specific dream was of becoming an immortal mortally great fiction writer Allegatus or Anderson, Balzac or Parekh, etc. And many of the notebook entries on which parts of this memoir are based were themselves literally jazzed up and fractured. 
It's just the way I saw myself at the time. In some ways, you could say that my literary ambitions were the chief reason I was on hiatus from college and working at the Midwest REC at all, though most of that whole story, backstory is tangential and will be addressed only here in the foreword and very briefly to wit. In a nutshell, the truth is that the first pieces of fiction I was ever actually paid for involved certain other students at the initial college I went to. <laughs> okay, I don't know what's supposed to lie. Which was extremely expensive and highbrow and attended mainly by graduates of elite private schools in New York and New England. Without going into a whole lot of detail, let's just say that there were certain pieces of prose I produced for certain students on certain, certain academic subjects, and that these pieces were fictional in the sense of having styles, theses, scholar-like personas, and authorial names that were not my own. I think you get the idea. The chief motivation behind this little enterprise was, it is so often is in the real world, financial. It's not like I was desperately poor in college. But my family was far from wealthy, and part of my financial aid package involved taking out large student loans. And I was aware that student loan debt tended to be very bad news for someone who wanted to pursue any sort of artistic career after college, since it's well known that most artists toil in ascetic obscurity for years before making any real money at their profession. So that's just a little bit from... David's posthumous novel. Um, and, and now to end with, I would like to read a passage from the majestic Infinite Jest. And, and this passage involves, it's a scene with a boy named Hal. He arrives for a mysterious meeting. The, the reason for it will become clear. And I actually need some help reading this passage. Um, it calls for a professional conversationalist, and there happens to be one <laughs> right here. So, so I'm a boy, if you can imagine that. A little boy. <laughs> <laughs> No, is my dad said to come here? Come right in. You'll see a chair to your immediate left. So I'm here. That's just fine. Seven up, maybe some lemon soda? I guess not, thanks. I'm just here is all, and I'm kind of wondering why my dad sent me down, you know. Your door there doesn't have anything on it, and I was just at the dentist last week, and so I'm wondering why I'm here exactly is all. That's why I'm not sitting down yet. You're how old, Hal? Fourteen? I'll be eleven in June. Are you a dentist? Is this a dental consult? You're here to converse. Converse? Yes. Pardon me while I key in this age correction. Your father had listed you as fourteen for some reason. Converses with you? You're here to converse with me, Hal, yes. I'm almost going to have to implore you to have a lemon soda. Your mouth is making those dry, <laughs> sticky, inadequate saliva sounds. Dr. 
Sally says that's one reason for all the caries is that I have low salivary output. Those dry, sticky, salivalous sounds which can be death to a good conversation. <laughs> but I rode my bike all the way up here against the wind just to converse with you. Is the conversation supposed to start with me asking why? I'll begin by asking if you know the meaning of implorer, Hal. Probably I'll go ahead and take a seven up then if you're going to implore. I'll ask you again whether you know implore, young sir. Implore? Young sir? You're wearing that bow tie, after all. Isn't that rather an invitation to a young (laughs) sir? Implores a regular verb, transitive, to call upon or for in supplication, to pray to or for earnestly, to beseech, to entreat. Weak synonym, urge. Strong synonym, beg. Etymology unmixed, from Latin implorare im, meaning in, plorare meaning in this context, to cry aloud. OED, condensed volume 6, page 1387, column 12 and a little bit of 13. Good Lord, she didn't exaggerate, did she? I tend to get beat up sometimes at the academy for stuff like that. Does this bear on why I'm here? That I'm a continentally ranked junior tennis player who can also recite great chunks of the dictionary verbatim at will and tends to get beat up and wears a bow tie? Are you like a specialist for gifted kids? Does this mean they think I'm gifted? Here you are. Drink up. (laughs) You were thirsty. So then if I sit down, you'll fill me in? Professional conversationalist knows his (laughs) mucous membranes, after all. I might have to burp a little bit in a second from the soda. I'm alerting you ahead of time. Hal, you are here because I am a professional conversationalist, and your father has made an appointment with me for you to converse. (laughs) Excuse me. Tap, 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 tap. Tap, 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 tap. You're a professional conversationalist? I am, yes. As I believe I just stated, a professional conversationalist. (laughs) Don't start looking at your watch as if I'm taking a valuable time of yours. If himself made the appointment and paid for it, the time's supposed to be mine, right? Not yours. And then, but what's that supposed to mean? Professional conversationalist. A conversationalist is just one who converses much. You actually charge a fee to converse much? A conversationalist is also one who, I'm sure you'll recall, excels in conversation. That's Webster's Seventh. That's not the OED. Tap, tap. I'm an OED man, doctor. If that's what you are, are you a doctor? Do you have a doctorate? Most people like to put their diplomas up. I notice if they have credentials and Webster's 7th isn't even up to date, Webster's 8th amends to one who converses with much enthusiasm. Another 7-up. Is himself still having this hallucination I never speak? Is that why he put the moms up to having me bike up here? Himself is my dad. 
We call him himself, as in, quote, the man himself, as it were. We call my mother the moms. My brother coined the term. (laughs) I understand this isn't unusual. I understand most more or less normal families address each other internally by means of pet names and terms and monikers. Don't even think about asking me what my little internal moniker is. Tap, tap, tap. But himself hallucinates sometimes. Lately, you ought to be apprised, was the thrust. I'm wondering why the moms let him send me pedaling up here, uphill, against the wind when I've got a challenge match at three to converse with an enthusiast with a blank door and no diplomas anywhere in view. I, in my small way, would like to think it had as much to do with me as with you, that my reputation preceded me. Isn't that usually a pejorative clause? I am wonderful fun to talk to. (laughs) I'm a consummate professional. People leave my parlor in states. You are here. It's conversation time. Shall we discuss Byzantine erotica? How did you know I was interested in Byzantine erotica? You seem persistently to confuse me with someone who merely hangs out a shingle with the word conversationalist on it. And this operation, with a fly-by-night one, strung together with chewing gum and twine. You think I have no support staff? Researchers at my beck? You think we don't delve full bore into the psyches of those for whom we've made appointments to converse? You don't think this fully accredited, limited partnership would have an interest in obtaining data on what informs and stimulates our conversees? I know only one person who'd ever use full bore in casual conversation. There is nothing casual about a professional conversationalist and staff. We delve, we obtain, and then some, young sir. Okay. Alexandrian or Constantinian? You think we haven't thoroughly researched your own connection with a whole current intra-provincial crisis in southern Quebec? What intra-provincial crisis in southern Quebec? I I thought you wanted to talk racy mosaics. This is an upscale district of a vital North American metropolis, Hal. Standards here are upscale and high. A professional conversationalist flat-out full-bore delves. Do you for one moment think that a professional prior of the trade of conversation would fail to probe beak deep into your family's sordid liaison with the pan-Canadian resistance's notorious M. Duplessis and his malevolent but allegedly irresistible amanuensis cum operative Luria P. Listen, are you okay? Do you? I'm ten for Pete's sake. I think maybe your appointment calendar squares got juggled. I'm the potentially gifted 10-year-old tennis and lexical prodigy whose mom's a continental mover and shaker in the prescriptive grammar academic world and whose dad's a towering figure in optical and avant-garde film circles and single-handedly founded the Enfield Tennis Academy but drinks wild turkey at like 5 a.m. 
M and pitches over sideways during dawn drills on the courts some days, and some days presents with delusions about people's mouths moving but nothing coming out. I'm not even up to J yet in the condensed OED, much less Quebec or malevolent lurias. Of the fact that photographs of the aforementioned liaison being leaked to Der Spiegel resulted in the bizarre deaths of both an Ottawa paparazzo and the Bavarian international affairs editor of an alpenstock through the abdomen and an ill-swallowed cocktail onion, respectively. I just finished Jew's ear. I'm just starting on Jew's harp and the general theory of oral Lars. I've never even skied. That you could dare to imagine we'd fail conversationally to countenance certain weekly, shall we say, maternal mm, assignations with a certain unnamed bisexual bassoonist in the Albertan Secret Guards Tactical Bands Unit? Gee, is that an exit I see over there? That your blithe inattention to your own dear grammatical mother's cavortings with not one, not two, but over 30 Near Eastern medical attaches? Would it be rude to tell you your mustache is askew? That her introduction of esoteric mnemonic steroids, stereochemically not dissimilar to your father's own daily hypodermic megavitamin supplement derived from a certain organic testosterone regeneration compound, distilled by the Hebrew shaman of the south-central L.A. basin into your innocent-looking bowl of morning Ralston. As a matter of fact... I'll go ahead and tell you, your whole face is kind of running, sort of, if you want to go ahead and check. Your nose is pointing at your lap. That your quote-unquote complimentary Dunlop wide-body tennis racket super-secret formulaic composition materials of high-modulus graphite-reinforced polycarbonate polybutylene resin are organochemically identical, I say again, identical, to the gyroscopic balance sensor and mise en scene appropriation card and priapistic entertainment cartridge implanted in your very own towering father's anaplastic cerebrum after his cruel series of detoxifications and convolution smoochings and gastromectomy and prostatectomy and pancreatectomy and phallotomy. Tap, tap. Good possibly escape the combined investigative attention of... And it strikes me, I've definitely seen that Argyle sweater vest before. That's himself, special interdependence day celebratory dinner Argyle sweater vest that he makes a point of never having cleaned. I know those stains. I was there for that clock. A veal marsala right there. Is this whole appointment a date-connected thing? Is this April Fool's dad?
or do I need to call the moms and CT? Who requires only daily evidence that you speak, that you recognize the occasional vista beyond your own generous mandragonoid nose's fleshy tip? You rented a whole office and face for this, but leave your old unmistakable sweater vest on? And how'd you even get down here before me with the mercury up on blocks after you... Did you fool CT into giving you the keys to a functional car? Who used to pray daily for the day his own dear late father would sit, cough, open that bloody issue of the Tucson Citizen and not turn that newspaper into the room's fifth wall, and who, after all this light and noise, has apparently spawned the same silence. Who's lived his whole ruddy, bloody, cruddy life in five-walled rooms... Dad, I've got a duly scheduled challenge match with Shacked in like 12 minutes. Wind at my downhill back or no? I've got this oral urologist who's going to be outside bright and best savings wearing a pre-designated necktie at straight up five. I have to mow his lawn for a month for this interview. I can't just sit here watching you think I'm mute while your fake nose points at the floor. And are you hearing me talking, Dad? It speaks. It accepts soda and defines implore and converses with you. Pray for just one conversation, amateur or no, that does not end in terror, that does not end like all the others, you staring, me swallowing. Son... Son! (laughs) (laughs) It's time to move the podium. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Hello. (laughs) We're going to be speaking about, guess what? David Foster Wallace, of whom you've had a good share tonight, heard a good deal, and now you're going to hear the conversation of four people. You know, when I was a newspaper man, they used to say that you had to quote, people who didn't agree, you know, to have a good newspaper story. But alas, we all agree. We love David Foster Wallace. And what you'll hear won't be, I don't think, much to um, offer the deadbeat's view of him. (laughs) We're going to begin as soon as I get a um, signal from... Well, it will come any second. (laughs) Oh, we're good to go. We're good to go. We're good to go. Okay. 
professional conversationalist or not, I thought it would be interesting to begin by hearing from the two of you who, who did know David, who had met him. Um, you, David, spent time in a coast van. You played chess with him. Tell us something about him. Uh, he was a very poor chess player. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah it's, um, and uh, when, uh, when you talk to, it's kind of, I didn't know if I could talk about it, but, um, but then when I, when I was talking to other people who knew him, you know, I'd kind of take him aside and say, did, did you play chess with him also? And they'd say, yeah, he just, he just couldn't get it. <laughs> he, just, he's, he, just, he left to play chess, but just not a good, not a great chess player. But, um, so but what he did play. Mean, like bad openings or, or what? Uh, you know, to be frank, I mean, really, uh, I would say... We're among op- friends. Uh, well, problems in the opening, I'd say problems in the middle game, problems with the pawn game, and then problems with the end game, too. So, <laughs> so. But of course, I mean, you, you know, you're, um, what, he, what he talked about, though, when he was talking about uh, talking to a, a new person and then... Um, uh, and then writing, he said that um, that what he finds was very easy for him to do was playing this game of conversational chess, which is kind of if I say this, what will it make you say? And if you say that, then what can I say to get you to say the thing I want you to say? And he said that now in personal discourse that makes things very difficult, but in writing that's the thing you really need. Um, and he just, um, as a person, he just sort of couldn't have been more charming. He was um, when a when I, was, when I was growing up in New York City, uh, David began publishing in Harper's Magazine in sort of the early 90s. And he was so charming that, uh, that, when, he was in the, when he came to Manhattan, people would brag about having seen him. Um, so <laughs> so before, I went out to, uh, before I went out to Chicago to drive down to Bloomington, Illinois to meet him, um, I had had the sort of the great good fortune of uh, my girlfriend been visiting me in New York and she was writing a, an email to Harper's and so I, I saw the email, and uh, David was described as a um, uh, very handsome, uh, sort of hulking athletic man um, who wears a do-rag and participates in the urban experience thusly. <laughs> Is unmarried, I believe. What were your other questions? <laughs> um, so uh, he, just, he was someone who, uh, everyone who met him just kind of wanted to spend more time with him. Um, and that was my experience spending time with him as well. Rick. What's the question now? I forgot what the question what was. was like, what was he experience? like? What do you remember? Yeah. Um, I mean, everything David has said is completely accurate from my point of view. I'm trying to think what sort of other tonal colors were in there. I mean, for one, he was incredibly uh, brilliant and, and sort of um, engaged with arts and literature and music, so he's really fun to talk to about that kind of stuff, uh, which is mainly the kind of context in which I knew him, you know. Um, I remember one night in the 80s, there was a guy in New York who was um, editing the Village Voice literary supplement for a while called Lee Smith, and he knew all these, you, you knew Lee, right? He knew all these younger writers. And so one night he, he took us, he took out to dinner David Wallace, Jonathan Franz, and Jeff Eugenides, me, Donald Antrim, and there were even a couple others, and all at one table, and it was sort of a shocking experience for me, the amount of intellectual firepower at the table, but chief among the, um, the 
dazzling moments in that conversation was David Foster Wallace quoting from Don DeLillo's novel America, which had not yet been re-released from memory. He knew the DeLillo's first novel so well that he could quote whole passages from it. You know? So it was that kind of an intelligence to me. And, and I really looked up to it. That's why I wanted to sort of, as David said, spend more time with him. Really. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you about the first time I met him. You know, I, I get to shiver and shake on a weekly basis when I know I'm going to get to talk to Susan Sontag or Joan Didion, people that I've been told, you know, will eat me alive by the end of the interview. But I was more afraid because I had read Infinite Jest and it bulldozed me. I mean, I was, what is the word, prostrate before it. And I was so eager to meet him because, you know, sometimes, does this happen to you? I get afraid that no one's going to be writing the kind of novel I love anymore, that no one's going to know enough to write that kind of novel, that that kind of, oh, Ulysses novel or Gaddis novel, John Barth novel, is going to be, you know, gone because of a, what, um, well, that people will no longer know enough to surprise and astonish me. Um, so I'm scared silly. And he sits down and I, I mean, how do I do it? You know, what do you, what's the first thing you say to someone whose work just devastated you? I never know, and I never know what my first question is going to be, and I don't make notes, and I don't like notes, and I don't want to bore anyone. So I said, I wanted to talk to you about fractals. <laughs> you know, like, I'm no good at openings either, <laughs> you know, chess or otherwise. And um, he goes, what do you mean, fractals? And I said, well, you know, I, I hear that you know, that if you take any length of coastline and compare it to any other length of coastline, that ultimately, if you reduce the units small enough, they're, they're the same. He said, oh, he said, they told me you were a brilliant reader. <laughs> so, you know, he gets my first, like, devoted smile, like a Labrador retriever. <laughs> he says, Yes, yes, I um, wanted to make a novel that would be based on an impossible-to-achieve geometric figure called, what is it, David? Uh, the Fibonacci uh, Gasco, is that right? Yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, Say it louder. Yeah, I'm actually going to get it off my phone just to make sure we have it, but you guys keep going and I'll say <laughs> uh, Well, some kind of gasket or other. <laughs> and um, he said he had a, photo, a picture of it, a poster of it, on his wall as a child, and um, that it looked like sort of like a pyramid on acid. <laughs> and uh, that he wanted to see if a novel could be shaped like that. He said, uh, describe what you detected. And I started to describe this novel... And he said, practically under his breath, so I only heard it when I re-listened to the interview after his death, he said, would you adopt me? (laughs) (coughs) 
And that began, you know, what was, you know, the... Well, we were in touch for the remainder of his life, and there was no one that I liked more because he was so generous and funny and good. You know, from time to time, I would get a note, you know, like... You get a note from David Foster Wallace. I mean, what have you done to be so lucky? And better still, it says, I have the feeling that you think that I think that you think I've offended you. (laughs) I hope not. Never would try to. Honestly, not. No. Let's put this aside forever. And I'd think, what is he talking about? (laughs) How could he have offended me? I mean... No, never. Um, I, um, he was every bit as self-conscious as his writing, and I often felt that he, because of that, had a lot of trouble living. And I don't know, but I'm a fellow depressive, and I'm a fellow former misuser of um, substances, but in particular, in my case, alcohol. So we had a good deal to talk about because we both felt that we were repenting a form of life that could never be apologized for sufficiently. And that was one of the most impressive things about David. Many people wish that they could still be uh, drinking and or using, um, but for him... It was really the beginning of a new life that he'd gotten when he came to us as a writer. And that was really thrilling to me. There was no one that I know of as self-displaying as he was in his writing. Um, But one of the things he displays is how much, you know, everyone is self-conscious. He simply had a whale's share of self-consciousness. And why? Because he was a genius, you know. He was an American genius. Not only that, he was a tennis champ. I mean, he was. I mean, he was a remarkable person who felt that he couldn't compensate enough for the former tragedy of his life. Now, you teach him. How do students respond to him? You know, as I'm listening to you talk about him, I'm I'm trying to put the description of the character together with the work. It makes a lot of sense. One of the things I'm I'm not yet hearing, though, is that there's a paradoxical... There's a tension in in the work. There's the wildness. there's, There's the drive of the sentence. There's the attention to addiction. The, the sensitive, uh, almost unbearable treatment of unbearably moving treatment of uh, the, the human in- inability to, to stop desire, you know, that, that, that translates into a wildness in the, in the fiction. Then on the other hand, there's this intense logic. There's the snootlet. You know, I get the feeling that David was a snootlet. And he says so. Um, and so that, that logic, you know, it comes together with that wildness and makes something incredible. Um, and so, you know, I'm kind of curious if, if you ever saw that in, in, you're in dealing with him day to day, the snootlet, you know, the, the attention to saying the right thing exactly. 
<laughs> um, I just want to say, first thing is a Scherpensky casket. Scherpensky's casket. <laughs> okay. Um, we, yeah, we were on the airplane, and, um, and uh, the, as we were flying into Minneapolis Airport, the, PA, the voice came over the PA and said, um, uh, smoking only is permitted outdoors. And David, who was a smoker and a grammarian, said, smoking is only permitted outdoors. Smoking is not the only thing that's permitted outdoors. <laughs> so, yes. That's a perfect yeah. example. Great. Great. He loved to stack opposites together. I remember that the thing that I couldn't stop laughing at, I think it's one of the funniest jokes in Infinite Jest. It's an exam question that asks the students in the exam to solve the following problem. What is a kleptomaniac to do if he's also agoraphobic. (laughs) And the answer to this question is mail fraud. (laughs) Something so conceptually complicated that he reduced to so few words. I know. I mean, that's a real snootlet. <laughs> Absolutely. That uh, there was a, a phrase quoted from uh, that you quoted, Rick, in, in the story you were reading, an intuition of the askew. That I thought, ah, that's him. That's that's, yeah, that's, that's David. Line. Yeah, yeah. The askew and all its craziness. You know. I, I, also thinking today in preparation for this, you know, that there's troubling news in the world. And I just feel, one, we, we have, <coughs> you know, David's gone. He can't comment on it. And he might be really pissed off that we don't comment on it. You know, he, he would be here, wait, why are you talking about me? Just, and I say that only because I, it, this is about David, but he was so much in the world, noticing everything. Everything was relevant to the point where you know, your head can ache reading him. Everything is interesting. Everything is relevant. Um, but, you know, just right now, I, I think he'd, he'd have important things to say in response. Yeah, absolutely. In this, in this new book, The Pale King, one of the things he spends a whole um, chapter having a chorus, essentially, of IRS agents talking about what it's like as you realize that your life is so insignificant that after a certain point you're simply going to die, that you're not going to be remembered, that you're not very important after all. And um, I think even though David was you know, the creator of some of the most important works of literature of our time, I think he felt that way, that there, you know, that life was a preparation that said to you, get ready to be humble, get ready to be humiliated, get ready to be squashed under the heel of time. (laughs) Oh, you see, you can't see, but several of our eyes are shining up here um, because it's very hard to talk about a friend who's gone. How did you feel when you heard the news, Rick? What did you do? I don't know, Michael, that 
I can talk about it. I sort of, I sort of can't. <clears throat> and I guess I had mixed feelings about coming to talk on a panel about David uh, for that reason. And I came finally because, and, you know, I was talking to you this morning about The Pale King and how great it is. Uh, and one reason that it's so great for me is that I can hear the voice of somebody I really cared about again, you know. Um, since I, too, have the misuse of substances past problem, uh, that was also an area where I knew David well. And um, it was a subject that we talked about over the years. And it was incredibly painful to me that the help that I think is out there for people who have the illness that you and I and he had uh, sometimes can't get what they need, you know? So uh, I have a lot invested for my own, in my own life in the idea that art and sobriety are things that have enabled me to go forward and keep doing what I do. Uh, and the idea that someone that I really cared about and looked up to like a sort of a literary older brother couldn't find those things. Yeah. It was terrifying and very upsetting. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's the only way I can talk about it. Uh, me too. And absolutely. You see, when I, I had come back to Los Angeles when my father died, um, and one of the... F the only one I really wanted to talk about it with was David, because, you know, you know, many people will say, oh, I'm so sorry, or they've learned the socially acceptable things to say on that occasion. But David, in conversation, would really make the effort to try to help you with an impossible situation. It's almost as if he was put here to take that kind of thing up. You know what I mean? And I um, left him a message. I guess it was almost like, I want to talk to you about fractals. You know, I call him, David, my, my, my dad died, and I can't think of anyone I want to talk to more than I want to talk to you. Uh, would you call me? And he wasn't the kind of person who wouldn't call back. You know, his sense of honor and responsibility was such a shining example to me because there are many calls I don't want to return and I get scared and stuff like that. Um, and I loved him for being able to say and stuff like that and show that a writer should be as gifted at being inarticulate as being articulate. And... He didn't call back, so I got worried that he, um, that something was wrong, or maybe he was on leave. He taught at a local university, and then two weeks later, I heard that he was dead. Uh, 
And I was, while I was reading this book, when David makes that appearance in the foreword that, that you read, I didn't even bring tissues, and I knew I was going to cry. Um, I, uh, when he made the appearance in the foreword, I thought, maybe he's still alive, you know, because the book so much feels like he's talking to you, talking directly to you and that he knows you real well. And I thought, wouldn't it be so wonderful if it turned out it was all a hoax, that he was writing a seditious and dangerous book about the IRS, and that he was only secretly, that he'd gone underground or something, or had plastic surgery, and then when the book was published to all of what will, I hope, inevitably be the best reviews he ever got in his life or after, um, that he would pop up, you know, and say, oh, I'm so sorry I had to fool you. You know, and I, I, I spent hours not being able to convince myself that it was a fantasy because I wanted it so badly. I knew no one more charismatic and who did, who achieved that state of charisma so simply. You know, it wasn't, he wasn't a show-off or anything. He was like a koan, a Zen koan. Um, you? <laughs> Me? Uh, how I felt when I heard that David had died, or yeah, um, I had also thought that uh, I just had not believed it was true. Um, David is the kind of writer because he um, uh, he's so striking and original that people would kind of do hoaxes about. Um, there had been a story that the that the Onion did that uh, David Foster Wallace writes seventy page breakup letter to his girlfriend. <laughs> With footnotes, and the, there's a below the story in the first column that said that his ex girlfriend had read the first few pages but didn't really have time to read the rest of it, and she was looking forward to it after break. Um, so I, I was hoping when people started calling me, I was hoping it wasn't true. Um, and then when it was clear that it was true, um, I called a friend of mine. And David is um, the, the thing that, that, that I find painful as a, as a reader is that David has acquired sometimes the, the reputation of being a difficult writer, but he is the easiest writer. I mean, you, you could hear from what we were reading tonight, he is just the most fun writer. What's difficult about David as a, as a writer is that it becomes hard to read other stuff. You know, when you've, if you've gone on a jag of reading his things and you try to read other, other writers, they seem awfully kind of flat. They don't seem as intelligent. They don't, the paragraphs kind of don't seem as full. And so he had he had readers everywhere, and there was a friend of mine who was a captain in the army who had retired. He had served two terms in Iraq, and he was at law school. And so I called him because I knew how much he had come to love David's work. And so he he was at a one of those sort of welcome to law school parties, and he walked out, and he was standing outside uh, somewhere in Palo Alto, and I think in the rain. And we were talking, and we were uh, we were crying on the phone, and what he said. It's kind of what, um, what Michael was saying. He said that some things had happened to him on his second tour in Iraq that, um, that he had found perplexing, and he didn't, he didn't know how to feel about them. And whereas with his rational mind, he knew that he would probably never sit down with David Wallace uh, in his reader's heart. He said he'd always hoped that he would someday have that moment to sit down with him, and that, and that if he and David had talked about it, David could have told him how to feel about those experiences. And um, I don't think there are a lot of writers who would have people all across the country that way responding to their laws. Yeah. 
Well, I apologize to all of you because I'm sitting here realizing David would far rather be remembered as an artist than as a suicide or an addict. And it's because of his great art that we read him and knew him. I I wondered, Joanna, what was it like to find his work for the first time when you first read him? Well, I guess he, he... Felt to me very, most of all, very American, um, uh, capturing uh, the noise of the culture in a way that um, seemed rare. I, I would say that it, uh, when I read a writer like David Foster Wallace, or you know, across the the spectrum, um, who who would be most radically different, say, Jam Kutsia, you know, writers so different from him. I would hope that the two do complement each other, that, that one doesn't exclude uh, the other. And, and I, I, I did get that feeling from, from David's work that, uh, that the capaciousness of the imagination uh, seemed to, to want to prompt us to go out there and look around and, and read and take note and... and um, I, I, I always feel amazed uh, just at, at the things he notices um, in, uh, from, from a, a, a little uh, a, a billboard to a, a scribble on a napkin to a, you know, the things that are so easy to overlook. And, and I love the feeling when art gives me that, when, when it, it tells me, start to notice things. And so I, I think that's what you know, in, in uh, spending time with the work, I think that's really what I, I, I treasure it for, take away from. My, my brother, actually, is a total... Like, he's one of those... He, he sleeps with infinite jest under his pillow. You know, he just... This is... This is it, it's defining for him in a way that, that I, I think the... Um, I, your friend, the soldier, I seem to feel too. You know, not just a writer who is who is helping you see the world, but a, a writer who can help you understand yourself. Um, so, so that's been interesting to watch too, to see how, how that a family member goes through with the addiction to David Foster Wallace. Yeah, I wanted to mention because I've been taught, you know, as a radio host, and I never know what people are thinking or feeling. Um, J. M. Coetzee, in case you don't know his work. His first novel was Waiting for the Barbarians. He's an African writer, um, white African writer, whose work is among the most profoundly complex and difficultly moral work being written today. He was the winner of the Nobel Prize. I just wanted to make sure everyone knew. (laughs) (laughs) Um, did, did, Did you, Rick, want to write like him? No, but I actually think in some ways that I do, and not because I was imitating him in any way, but more that I I sort of feel like history throws up certain models for how to make literature at various points to fulfill certain needs, Um, and that some of the things that culture needed David Wallace for 
it in a tiny way needs me for too. Um, and by that, I suppose what I mean is a certain idea of the line paragraph construction that's based on longer sentences, um, certain ideas of voice. Um, I think his influences and my influences are very similar. Uh, Who are they? Well, I mean, he comes out of experimental writing of the 60s and 70s, which I certainly do too, you know. Um, Although I remember talking to him about Gravity's Rainbow at one point, and he seemed to have not very much interest in Pinchon, actually, which I found fascinating. But uh, So I sort of felt like we were coming from a not-dissimilar spot some of the time. For example, I wrote a story with footnotes in 1994 that was in my first collection of stories. Technically predates Infinite Jest in some way, you know. Um, and nobody ever believes that now. But, um, you know, Nicholson Baker was doing it at the same time, obviously, with The Mezzanine, a book that was very important to me. And uh, so I think there's just a way that literary history requires certain things in order to say what it needs to say. Um, Nobody can be as smart as David Wallace about philosophy and literature. I think he's an end point. in the current moment for how to think about those things. Um, so it would be impossible to write like him. Nobody can. Uh, but the model that he makes indelible for me and made indelible for me from the moment that I heard him read at Dixon Place that time was that if you didn't use your intellectual life to the utmost of your ability, you were... Um, you know, tying an arm behind your back as a fiction writer. And I had come through a period in the mid-80s when I was in graduate school uh, where the model for how to make fiction was uh, what we talk about when we talk about love by Raymond Carver, which was not work that I was capable of imitating in any way. So David sort of blazed onto the scene and said, I'm going to use all the cylinders. I'm going to fire on all the cylinders and uh, you'll be amazed at what I know, you know. And so that was a very attractive model to me who had been somewhat reviled in writing workshops for not being able to write blunt little sentences about working class life in the Pacific Northwest. I I wish that I could have written those. But, uh, I can't believe that happened at Brown, though, of all places. Not at Brown, but at Columbia. It oh, totally yeah. happened, yeah. Uh, so that was the value of David for me. There's no room to stylistically imitate him, I don't think, but there's a lot of room to say, to sort of follow the model and say, my ambition is for my work to be as smart and, um, you know... Uh, uncompromising in the matter of intellectual life uh, as I can make it. David and Joanna. Uh, see, I knew Rick and Joanna's work before, and I make it a practice. I think it's not respectful to talk to a writer without knowing their work, although other people don't feel this way. <laughs> but um, So I, I, I read David's fiction, and I know Joanna's fiction. Both of you are writers whose work is very, very different. De- um, 
Rick Moody, at least, has written an enormous novel in Five Fingers of Death, so that impulse is, um, is there. But I wondered... See, because this is something I can never know, and maybe it's a question, you know... Um, David was a reader and, and profoundly influenced by Wittgenstein. And for Wittgenstein, the problem is you can never know the contents of another mind. You know, the, that inability to communicate goes way down deeper. That, that there, it's essentially a form of radical skepticism. But I wondered often, I wonder often what it's like for writers to encounter a writer who's so different from your own sensibility, who you nevertheless respond to and love. That, that's the story of reading for me. I mean, everybody, from, from Chekhov to James, and then you turn the corner and there's Virginia Woolf, and then there's Dickens, and then there's Blaubert, and wait, where was I, you know? Everyone is so strikingly different. So that's why I, I would hope that, that, you know, we accumulate models and, and not exclude uh, in, the, in our, you know, the, the, the celebration of, of what David has done. Uh, but I would say in David's case that although his, uh, he, he may have loved academic philosophy and, um, and his father was a philosopher, so he had um, sort of like the family store, um, that, that what, what makes him so appealing and attractive, is, I think, is not that, but actually that he does, even though his subject matter might be different, he sounds, there was a great excitement when he started publishing because he sounded the way we flatter ourselves the way most of us feel we think, the way we find ourselves speaking, that we can be sort of cursing and also talking about or thinking about Wittgenstein or talking about a TV show and having all those thoughts coming at once. And in, um, in prose, it tend to be sort of segregated before that, and he put those streams together. Um, and that was why when, when, um, when Infinite Jest came out and when the essays began appearing, people were thrilled because it suddenly sounded... Uh, what David said was that... Uh, he, he described a prose voice really as like a brain voice. And he said the great thing about fiction is that we're all kind of locked into a self and that fiction is the one way you can kind of leap over that wall of self. And I think that his prose uh, is uniquely capable of doing that. I want to thank all three of you for what you brought and what different things you brought and for being willing to go as deeply um, and sit in whatever feelings of wretchedness or joy um, come up when thinking about David. I, I really enjoyed talking to you all, and I want to thank this large audience for coming and hearing talk about such a beautiful, difficult, and thrilling writer and, you know, the books by the writers here are available out in the lobby. So will they be. And I thank you all for joining us tonight. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcast at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. 
Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives. 